The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report, coming to you today from One Market in San Francisco. It's great to be here. Front and center, app, Apple. Uh, the day after, shares sliding a bit following Monday's Worldwide Developers Conference, a downgrade for the stock today. We do have the analyst who did that. Coming up in just a moment, we'll debate the road ahead for Apple Tech in the markets with the Investment Committee and joining me for the hour today, Brenda Vangelo, Josh Brown, Stephanie Link, Rob Seachin, take you to the market, show you what we're doing today. Well, we're giving a little back. That's that's uh, clear. You can see S&P is, uh, is higher by a smidge. Dow's a little bit lower. NASDAQ is uh, the outperformer yet again. I want you to show uh, Apple, too. Uh, because it did hit that new all-time high yesterday, and it continues to pull back uh, just a bit here following WWDC as investors get a, got a look at all of these new uh, products that Apple's rolling out. So, Josh Brown, uh, you've had some time now as an Apple shareholder to think about all this, given what shares are doing. What are your thoughts? You know, I think the biggest takeaway for me is not that in the next year or two there's going to be this huge contribution to earnings from the new technology platform. I think it's much bigger than that. I think if you are in the stock and you're looking at a $3 trillion market cap and you're saying, like, how much bigger can this company get? How many more phones can they really sell? You know, a lot of their, tar a lot of their end markets are saturated just by virtue of how successful they've already been. What's next? What's next? What's next? I listened to a lot of the commentary yesterday, and people are really... Um, stuck on this idea that the phone in, their, in the palm of their hand all day is going to be what the world looks like 10 years from now. And I have to tell you, I really don't see it. I also don't think we're going to be walking around with ski goggles. So what will probably happen is that Apple will continue um, to be the most profitable player in wearables. The, what looks like ski goggles or a half a helmet now will ultimately look like a pair of spectacles at some point. They'll look more like glasses. Um, everything will get smaller. Everything will work better. There won't be a wire connected to them forever. That's the evolution. And the idea that we're all going to walk around with a phone in one hand is going to be laughable five, six, seven years from now. Apple sees that coming. And they have to not react to it, but plan for it in advance. So that's what this is. So to answer the question to the Apple investor who's been invested in the stock forever, which includes me, What's next? What's next? What's next? Probably a world where our hands are free, but we are still connected to the web and our friends and family and all of our favorite apps. Apple is probably going to be the leader there because they're making the investment today um, and they're, they're being bold and they're being daring and they're, and they're willing to take the risk. And that is what should give you heart to stay with the stock for the long term and mm -hmm. not think we've already seen the best that things can be. So, Brenda, you were with me yesterday at Apple Park as, as all of this was, was unfolding. And the big question going in was, 
Was WWDC going to provide momentum for the stock mm -hmm. to continue this incredible move that it's had mm -hmm. year to date? Right? It's up more than 40 percent. Right. Did they do that or not? Well, I think it's debatable, right? I mean, to Josh's point, this is going to be, um, the VR is going to be potentially the wave of the future, but it's not going to be the wave of this year for Apple or maybe not even next year. Um, this is something to look forward to as a potential growth driver down the road. But between now and then, I think when it comes to Apple, we have to look at, you know, how just how much more penetrated can they get? Emerging markets has been a big part of the growth story, so that could continue. Also, kind of cross-selling product. We look at what happened last quarter. Three-quarters of the people that bought a watch were new to the watch. So that's just still, it's an eight-year-old product, but they're still getting good traction uh, from brand-new buyers in the market. So I think that is probably what's going to fuel the stock uh, over the next potentially 18 months. Uh, but until we have more clarity about more of a mass-market product or mass-market adoption of this sort of technology, I think it's it's just back to the same story that we've had. Well, I mean, but the, but the same story is fine. Yeah. In fact, the same that's story right. is good. That's right. If not great, that's and, right. and that's one of the reasons why the stock has done mm -hmm. so well. Uh, right. So, Stephanie Link, how do you see it as, as a shareholder? Um, and look, the, this stock is obviously so important to the market as a whole, and maybe even more so yeah. now, just given the fact of what tech has done, what this stock and so many others in the group, and there are others in, in the space today that are, are hitting new 52-week highs. It's Alphabet, it's Meta, um, and some of the others too. Well, yeah, so I, nothing changes in my mind, and I'm not inclined to add at 31 times forward estimates. We talked about yesterday, if we were to see a pullback for whatever reason, I would take a look, certainly, especially ahead of the next phone, the next gen phone, uh, which is definitely going to drive more excitement. Um, but for now, I, I just think, wow, the headset is cool, right? An impressive set of, case, of use cases and apps. But it's too expensive, it's too clunky, and while it could increase services revenue, it's going to be over time. So even if they got to 8 million units by 2026, which is what people are forecasting, that's only 36 cents a share. So it's not really meaningful at all. I just don't think it's going to be that meaningful for, for, for a while, maybe even beyond 2026. It's exciting, it's fun to talk about, but I think we're in the very, very early stages. So, so no change in, in, my, in my view, and I just okay. think that there are other places within technology that, ha that have better growth and better stories. Rob, how much does the market need Apple at this very moment? Just given how narrow the move <clears throat> higher has been, what all these stocks have done, what this one in particular is the biggest one in the market has done in its own right. What happens mm -hmm. if there's a bit of a, a headset hangover, as we're calling it today? And, and these shares, if, if nothing else, they don't have to go down, but they just stall out. Yeah, I think it's important for markets, obviously, simply because of the market weighting of Apple, right? We've all talked about that. But when I think when you when you talk about transformational technology, Scott, whether it be this or the AI trade, I think you have to think about it in three time frames. Number one is near term, and these markets are driven by momentum and FOMO, fear of missing missing out. And while their headsets expensive. I think there's likely to be some people that continue to stay in the name just for that. Now, you know we're neutral on the name. We upgraded to neutral from underweight in September. That has been a very big move for us from a performance standpoint, and I don't think we have any intent to go underweight. In the medium term, we all know these are driven by fundamentals like valuations and earnings, right? We're not there yet, but Steph's right. At some point, we are going to be focused on that, and, and you know, that's, that's, that's tomorrow's story. Long term, it's much more difficult because 
It's driven by answers to key questions uh, based on the broad ecosystem. So I would say right now, don't fight the momentum. I would say in the medium term, let's pay attention to whether they're actually beneficiaries. You saw an immediate beneficiary in NVIDIA, right? Others are going to take a longer time to see those benefits. And then longer term, we need to understand the ecosystem. So we don't know if it is 1995, 1997, what hiccups are we going to see along the way? But there's mm -hmm. no doubt it's transformational. And when it's transformational, you can pay a premium. I just want to say one more thing. We Hurry are up. underweight from a macro standpoint on tech, Scott, based yep. on price. But when we look in our portfolios, we were surprised to see that we're slightly overweight technology. And it's because these stocks have delivered so much and we're unwilling to get out of the way of the momentum that we see here. In addition, quality has not deteriorated in these. The E is keeping up with the story. So uh, the story has not been completely written too easy early to jump out. Well, some might say our, our next guest is fighting the momentum not only of the market, but in Apple in particular. D.A. Davidson downgrading Apple today to neutral from buy. The analyst Tom Forte joining us now. It's good to see you. I'm, I'm glad you're here today. Why'd you do this? So thanks for having me on, Scott. So I think it's a combination of it's already priced in the stock. The stock's trading at not only near 52-week highs, but all-time highs. It's trading at a premium multiple on an adjusted uh, enterprise value EBITDA basis, P.E., uh, sales basis. And then there are structural challenges to mass adoption of augmented reality, virtual reality hardware that are going to be difficult even for Apple to surmount. When you think about price, offering it $34.99 does nothing to improve mass adoption content. It's wonderful that Disney Plus will be available at launch early next year, but we're waiting to see more content. When you think about the iPhone, the iPhone was great, but you needed the App Store and the apps for consumers really to appreciate the device. And then from a form factor standpoint, you talked about ski goggles. Are we really going to walk around wearing ski goggles? We're not. Even Apple, with all its excellence in design, couldn't make this product look good. It's got a two-hour external battery life that's also limiting. And then the challenge for Facebook, for Sony, for everyone when it comes to AR, VR is for a small portion of the population, they get motion sickness when they use the product. Okay. So these structural challenges are the reason we downgraded Apple shares. Okay, so, so this sounds very specific to Vision Pro. Um, fundamentally, you just don't think the product's going to do that well. You think it's too expensive. The one area I would come back to you on is where you suggest it's already priced in. Now, how can it be already priced in if we just learned about it yesterday. We didn't really know what we were getting. We didn't know what the price was going to be. So how can that possibly be priced into the stock? We didn't learn the details, Scott, the $34.99 price point, some of the functionality, things of that nature. But I think there was speculation that they were coming out with what is their most significant new product since the 2007 iPhone launch. And I think that drove the shares. In addition to investor enthusiasm for artificial intelligence, and then very company-specific issues like the reopening in China, uh, benefiting Apple from a supply chain standpoint and a consumer demand standpoint. But I do think the expectation of this new product launch uh, contributed to Apple hitting its all-time highs leading into the event. But if, if, if this was priced for half of what they, they priced it as uh, at, w would you be downgrading it today or, or not? 
Yes, because the structural challenges are still the same, meaning that they're not going to have, it appears they're not going to have an abundance of content, so the use of the product at launch is still limited, and there's challenges on the form factor, like I said, as far as you know, how the product looks, uh, battery life, things of that nature. Uh, and even if they price it half as much, you have a competing product from Meta Platforms at $499, which is a lot cheaper and stands to benefit from Apple driving mass adoption or trying to drive it in a AR, VR hardware. You keep your price target, uh, actually you lower it to 185 from 193. Uh, so we could see with this, the slippage today, a little bit of work to do to get there. Tom, thank you. It's Tom thank Forte, you, DA Davidson. Um, the fact of the matter is, is the analyst you just heard from is, is not the only one skeptical of this new product. Let's bring in Steve Kovac. Uh, he, of course, our tech reporter. You were there uh, with us yesterday yeah. as well. You got your hands on this. Yeah, I got to try and it. We'll talk about that in a minute. But we found a TikTok video okay. um, from somebody who was in the room when the Vision Pro price of $3,500 was unveiled. I want you to watch this. Apple Vision Pro starts at $3,500. It will be available early next year on Apple.com and at Apple retail stores in the U.S. Rough. All right, so these are the hardest of hardcore Apple fans. Yeah, and they and were groaning at the price. There's a groan, a gasp, and some laughs. Yeah, exactly. And look, we knew it was going to be expensive. Even the hardest core Apple fan knew it was going to be expensive. I guarantee a lot of people in the audience are still going to buy it anyway. But look, Scott, I tried it. It feels like $3,500 when you try this thing. It's uh, crystal clear when you put it on. I've tried the, all the Meta headsets. This is leaps and bounds beyond anything Meta has put out so far, including their pro version of their headset that came out last fall. Whereas it's very pixelated on the Meta headsets, and you you know it's the apps don't look super good. This it's like staring at an iPhone app, but floating in space. It is it is really well done. Not to mention it's not just the visuals though. The audio is incredible too. There's a uh, this kind of built-in surround sound they call it spatial audio. You don't even need to wear headphones, but it still plays that spatial audio. That's really nice. What do you make of what you just heard the analyst say about the? The issues that are going to exist around trying to get, you know, I don't know about mass adoption. I think we're early to talk about that. But even, enough, but even enough adoption that it's going to make a dent in what has been described as the most important product for this company, arguably since the iPhone, but certainly since the watch. But it sounds like such a long term evolution here. I mean, I would point to what Morgan Stanley said last week. They're they're charting this out into the 2030s, not 2025 or 26. So this isn't going to go on sale till next year. And th even then, only in the U.S., only through Apple, only Apple stores or Apple.com, and then spread out to other countries. You're not going to be able to walk into a Best Buy, for example, and buy it like you can a Mac. So right out of the gate, it's going to be very limited. It's going to be hard to buy one, most likely. So they're not trying to make it a mass market product. I mean, the price alone says that, right? And the groans say that. In Enough, but also just the way they're rolling it out in phases. They clearly don't expect this to be an iPhone-level product right off the bat. Are you surprised in any way that we didn't get anything more substantive on, on AI? Tim Cook is obviously making it clear, and I, I read the transcript of an interview that, that he did, where he makes the point that they're going to be deliberate right. and thoughtful 
before they just say AI, 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 and here's what we're doing on AI and try and you know get everybody all, all excited about that? Are you surprised that we didn't get anything A yesterday? little bit, but not, not entirely because back when, remember when the Alexa wave came about and everyone was saying, oh my God, Siri is so far behind what Amazon is doing and there's this kind of you know meme going out there that Apple is behind in AI. It's That's coming around again. And what the way they work with AI is, at least on the Siri level, they, they want it to be right. We know ChatGPT is wrong a lot and it is not a reliable source. So they'd rather get it right and make it perfect than you know, risk having Siri tell you wrong answers. At the same time, a lot of interesting AI stuff happening. The headset I used, that is a lot of artificial intelligence and machine learning going on just so the cameras can understand the environment around you and analyze and process all that. That's a lot of AI happening. You just may not interact with it directly. Josh, did you, did you want something more on AI yesterday, just given where we all are and what the conversation and the narrative has really started to dominate uh, the entire conversation around. And we just didn't get it. Um, they're just not ready to say anything on it yet. I was one of those people who in March, when the uh, leaked images of the ski goggle shaped prototype came out, was like, yeah, right. No one's going to want to walk around like that. It totally misses the point. Imagine sitting on an airplane. You'd rather be dead than surrounded by those people on that flight, uh, bunched up into your seat. This, this, literally, this literally is an escape from your current reality for as long as you need it to be. To, to feel as though you're walking inside of a Disney movie or immersed in a, in a basketball game on an ESPN-like interface with three dimensions and, and, and a panoramic um, view frame. That's what this is. It's not walking down the street. There's, no, there's nobody walking down the street with the, with the meta goggles either. That's really what this is. It's not, um, it's not a replacement for anything that we're currently doing um, when we're walking around. It's a new interface for computing that's more immersive than what we have today. So to look at $3,500 and compare it to the cost of a phone, I think is a mistake. I think it's a computer. That's one. Two. I'm looking at 2007 articles with analysts from UBS and other firms covering the launch of the iPhone, and they're mocking the price. Um, I, I, I'm looking at in that same article. They're counting how many iPod units Apple will sell, and those candy-colored iMacs, like that was what was important then. So you have to have imagination uh, to be an investor in, in this space. And of course, there's risk, and not every product launch uh, goes well. The watch was, was considered a flop in the first six months. Now the wearable segment at Apple is $40 billion a year. AirPods is $10 billion. The watch is $18 billion a year. Okay? So it doesn't have to be a home run out of the gates. You just need the imagination to understand that these things improve over time and they start with a small user base and ultimately they can explode and change the way we live. That doesn't have to show up in earnings this year in order for investors to take notice of it. Yeah, what Josh was saying about sports, that really struck me because one of the demos I did yesterday floor seats of a Phoenix Suns game. You can just imagine how crystal clear that looked. You can't afford a seat to go to the Suns game, but you can afford maybe, you know, 
the, the headset and maybe a hundred bucks. I talked to Mark Cuban about this years and years ago when Oculus first came out, and his dream was to have those cameras on the floor seats of Mavs game and start selling this. This, this is going to happen. This is going to make that vision for what he wants to do a reality because it really did feel like you're there, crystal clear. Just like I'm looking at you right now, Scott. That's how close I was. I saw a baseball game too. It felt like I was sitting right Hold there back. on first base. Interesting. Uh, what it's about having you. what? What? Yeah. What? A, Go ahead, Scotty. Oh, sorry. I, I, I want to agree with both sports these is guys. So, sports is small. Sports is small. It's a. It's so much bigger than that. There's an oh, episode of Portlandia, yeah, of course. where they no, don't they don't want to go sports. to a festival concert. They put on helmets. Like this is this is the kind of thing that people have dreamed about forever. Um, to be able to enter and exit different experiences. Um, with, without having to travel, without having to endure the physical constraints of those experiences, the, the amount of ideas to just say, oh, it's only Disney. <laughs> what Not are even we close. doing? What are we talking about? Hey, 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 can I agree with Josh real quick, Scotty? Because this is so important as it relates to Apple. Right now, all this is a faith-based bet. And the reality of it is, is so many consumers are willing to make that faith-based bet with Apple. And oh, by the way, you're doing it with a company that has consistent earnings growth, high free cash flow generation, valuation's a little high right now, but huge returns on invested capital, and sustainable competitive advantages with price momentum right now. And so if you're gonna make the bet on tomorrow, why don't you do it with some company that has delivered? Now mind you, we're not overweight, we're neutral, but we're not going to go underweight a company that has all these characteristics and the loyal following that Apple has. And by the way, while they've had some misses, they've delivered more often than not. And I agree with Josh, too, that I don't think we're going to be wearing these helmets and headsets uh, around. I think they're going right. to refine the technology. It's going to be much better. And the question is, how long do you have to wait for that? Right. Um, it's been fun being with you. Yeah, Steve it's been great being out uh, here with having you here. Thank uh, you for certain. All right, let's do this. Let's take a quick break. Up next, we do have some moves to go over from the investment committee. And later, do not miss our exclusive interview with Walter Isaacson. We'll find out if he thinks the AI boom is reminiscent of the dot-com bubble. We'll ask him about what Apple's doing as well. Remember, he wrote the book on Steve Jobs. We're live from One Market in San Francisco. Halftime back in just two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to this special halftime report live from One Market in San Francisco. 
Let's get to some of our committee moves. I mentioned we do have several. And Stephanie Link, I'm going to begin with you. Lamb mm-hmm. Research, you have trimmed this stock. Tell me why. Because it's up 45% year to date, simply as profit taking. It is trading at a premium to its five year multiple average, uh, but I don't think it's egregious at 18 times, which is why it remains a, a pretty big position. But I just think that, you know, when TSMC comes out and they're, gonna, and they're guiding uh, wafer fab equipment spend at the low end, it's not a surprise, but it just means that I think the, the earnings revisions higher are pushed out just a little bit. So I made it a little bit smaller. I like it for the long term. It's a volatile stock. If it's weak, I'll probably buy it back. I just feel like it, it tees up such uh, an important conversation, which we've been trying to have for the last, you know, many days as to whether and, and you've done it with other stocks, too. And the lady sitting next to me did it with NVIDIA and Malcolm Etheridge, who was on with us yesterday in the afternoon, did it with Apple. Looking at these because you just said, well, it's been up 40 some odd percent this year, like so many of these names have been. And yet I look at notes and I've got Brian Belsky today who's going to be with us tomorrow, by the way, uh, upgrading tech. I got Marco Kalanovic today. We're more positive on tech this year. I mean, now, Great. now we're getting on the tech train after 40 plus percent gains for some of these stock stuff. Should every investor right now be reassessing yeah. their, their positioning in tech? Well, I, I think tech, it can continue, maybe not at the rapid rate it has been going at, but there are so many secular powerful trends that we talk about every single day, AI, data center, cloud, cyber, even PCs are going to make a comeback at some point. So I don't think that the earnings are really at risk. I just think that everyone's piled into the same names. And if we can start to chip away at some of the macro uncertainties in the economy, meaning we got through the debt ceiling, Maybe we get through Fed next week unscathed. I think probably Um, you have China actually is now stimulating. And on the same time, you have the economy hanging in there. And so if we do all these things, chip away at those unknowns and then the economy can hang in, meaning earnings also can hang in. Maybe we see a broadening in the market. And that's what I'm betting on. So I want to have exposure to technology, but I am taking some profits and putting it elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not suggesting in, in terms of reassessing your positioning in tech. Uh, I'm saying looking at yeah. the size of your positioning in some of these stocks with the gains you've had and saying, OK, maybe it is time to reassess that as some, as we just said, are upgrading the space. But uh, we will continue that conversation for certain. Let's get the headlines now with Bertha Coombs. Hi, Bertha. Hi, Scott. Iran debuted what it is calling a hypersonic missile that the country claims can evade any current anti-missile system. The development is likely to push Western tensions with Tehran even higher. The country claims the missile has a range of about 900 miles and can fly five times faster than the speed of sound. Prince Harry became the first high-ranking royal family member to testify in court in 130 years today. He said tabloid editors have blood on their hands as he spoke about the impact newspaper articles have had on his family's life. The comments were part of the trial against Mirror Group newspapers. Prince Harry and others accused the newspaper group of obtaining information about them illegally. The Republican-controlled House of Representatives will vote this week on two bills that would prevent regulators from banning gas stoves or setting new standards for new models. Some state and local governments have taken action against the stoves. As evidence emerges, they contribute to climate change and could be detrimental to Americans' health. Scott?
All right. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. Coming up, we'll debate if the current AI mania has echoes of the dot-com bubble. Our halftime headliner, Walter Isaacson, joins us next with his thoughts. Don't miss that. We're back right after this on the Halftime Report. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at... 3 a.m. The office was shocked. (laughs) That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Halftime Live from San Francisco today. For many, the mania around AI stocks brings back memories of the dot-com boom and bust. But are those comparisons legitimate? Our Deirdre Bosa here with me now, One Market, to take a look at that. And a lot of people are talking about that very issue. There's always that question, right? Do we just seeing another bubble? We've seen these stocks just go up, especially in the case of an NVIDIA. But, you know, we crunched the numbers. I want to show you one chart in particular right. because I think that this Scott really says it all. And it compares the forward P.E. ratios of some of the biggest tech companies back at the top dot-com bubble at the height of that with where we are now. Look at pretty clear. <laughs> back then it was wild. It's wild now, but back then it was really, really wild. Let's look at some of the individual companies as well. Let's say um, a Qualcomm, a Cisco, a Yahoo versus what we're calling now, I guess, the Magnificent Seven. <laughs> and you can see that the P.E. ratios are much more reasonable now. Current P ratios, when you look a year out or two years out, they do go up because the earnings, right, when we talk about AI, it's the future possibility. NVIDIA changed that a little bit, said mm-hmm. that it's actually here. We can look to it this year. But another thing I go back to, the difference between then and now, just the sheer amount of cash on balance sheets. And that's why we're talking about tech as a defensive play, because it looks a lot different than it did back then. There's real earnings. There's billions, in many cases, hundreds of billions of dollars of cash. Yeah, I'm looking at right, right now from, from 99, uh, what the cash hoards were then uh, versus you know what they are now. It's amazing. But the, the forward PEs really tell the story. Yeah. The Yahoo one, 600 and 20 whatever times forward right. really puts it into perspective. Yeah, and that was just the promise, right, of what the internet was going to be. So I understand the comparison when we look at AI. A lot of this is just talk right now. In the case of the chip makers, money is coming in the door this year. In the case of NVIDIA, right, which blew away all expectations, those are actual dollars and cents that they're going to be booking this year. But for Microsoft, for Google, for an Amazon, for a Meta, this is the future possibility of it, right, which isn't as clear as in the case of the chip makers, the semis that are going to be the picks and shovels of this revolution. Uh, But I would also say that there's a difference between the Internet and the AI revolution. A lot of smart folks here in the Bay Area, which I'm sure you've talked to while you've been here, think that AI is going to be even bigger than the Internet. So if you think about that, there could be a lot more room to run. Which companies? We looked at the biggest, right? Right. The Magnificent Seven. But there's a lot of other companies we could look at, the smaller companies like the C3 AIs, the Palantirs, um, that some may think is unreasonable because we don't know yet if they're going to be big winners in this space. Let's continue. I want you to stick around. Let's continue our conversation now with Walter Isaacson, Tulane University professor of history, Perella Weinberg advisory partner, Aspen Institute distinguished fellow, and of course his Elon Musk biography is set to uh, be released in September. Walter, it's so good to have you on this topic. Welcome. It's an honor to be back with you, Scott. What do you make of this mania? 
You know, in 1999, when I was editor of Time, we were about to make Jeff Bezos the person of the year. And you could feel the air starting to come out of what you just called uh, the dot-com bubble. And I asked one of the people who I worked with, and they said, don't worry about it. You know, Jeff Bezos is not in the dot-com business. He's in the customer service business. And even though Amazon went down in 2000, and I thought we were going to look silly for having made him person of the year, Amazon transformed the way we live. That's going to be true of AI, not just AI in terms of generative text like chatbots, but AI in terms of what we saw Apple just do, which is real-world AI, where cars are driving themselves, headsets are telling you what's happening around you. That's going to be a platform that will be transformative. I mean, for every Amazon, though, there were 400 pets.com. Exactly. Right? Yeah, Pets.com is a great example. And uh, yeah, there are a lot of failures, and there will be failures now. My Tulane students keep handing me proposals for all sorts of GPT services that'll, I don't know, figure out what bar you're supposed to go to using GPT. A lot of those are going to fail. But this is like having a personal computer was in the 1980s. It's a productivity tool. Whether you're an accountant or an analyst or a lawyer or a journalist, your productivity will go up a lot. So yeah, we're going to see. I'm not telling you to buy every little stock that comes along that puts GPT in its name. But I'm saying that this is going to be historical in how it changes productivity in our society. And for me, that means it'll create more jobs, not destroy jobs, because new productivity tends to create more jobs. It's an interesting perspective as, as you know, plenty of people now, Walter, as you know, are talking about yeah. the potential risks. I mean, you wrote an essay in the Wall Street Journal recently as of, you know, not even a month ago. Will AI help us or leave us behind? What do you think the answer to the question you ask is? You know, by leaving us behind, I mean that it will not need to be tightly bound to humans. And I think the thing we have to do is always make sure that we have good user interfaces. That's a complex word for just meaning how do we bond with our computer. You talk about Apple and Siri. I remember with Steve Jobs going to that last meeting he had at Apple. And Siri was a way we could connect with our computers. You talk about Elon Musk what he's doing with Neuralink, using chips in our brain so that we have a high bandwidth connection to our computers. This will be all the more important in the age of AI because we don't want to create artificial intelligence that has no need for humans. We want to have an augmented human intelligences, and that means a tight connection between us and our machines. But do you think we need to tap the brakes on the development of it, like Musk himself and others in the space who are pioneering this kind of technology have suggested? No. I mean, maybe it would be nice to say, hey, let's stop all progress. You could be King Canute raging against the tides and trying to stop that. Uh, maybe it would be nice, but it's a moot question because it's not going to happen. And I think that what we have to do is create both guardrails. We have to say, who is going to use this in a way that uh, gets us to the truth better, that's not hallucinating? And the people who do that, for example, CNBC has a great data set, a huge amount of video and 
text each day that can be used to train AI, the, the new generative uh, large language models, that's reliable data as opposed to the data that we've seen has been used in GPT-4. So I think it's going to be important to say these are the people who are doing it responsibly and safely, and they'll end up being the winners. You know, Walter, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you um, to react to what Apple did yesterday. Uh, I, of course, was there uh, for the Worldwide Developers Conference where they rolled out what some are calling the most important product since the iPhone. Uh, you wrote the book on Steve Jobs, as I said. What do you think Jobs would think of this Well, he would love headset? it. I think he's always wanted uh, to go into new fields ever since he decided to create the iPod in the early 2000s, which was an unusual thing for you know, a computer company to do, and likewise with the iPhone. I also think that the history of technology is very much advanced by new ways that we can closely connect ourselves, tie ourselves to our computers. As I said before, those human-computer interfaces. When he saw Siri, that was a great leap in human-computer interface. This is one of the next big leaps in that. And so I do think you're seeing Apple. I heard earlier in the show you said, well, maybe they didn't say much about getting into the AI business. AI is not just chatbots that do it with text. AI is things like uh, these mixed reality headsets that can process visual data from cameras and turn it into something intelligent you can interact with. Real world AI, as opposed to just text chatbot AI, meaning robots that can navigate in the real world, which is what this headset will help us uh, interact with, or self-driving cars, that's the real future of AI. Walter, it's great catching up with you again. It's been God, a while. Always. And, uh, so happy to have this conversation. We'll talk to you Thanks. soon. My That's Walter Isaacson uh, joining us there. I mean, you talked to a lot of people out here, D. And when you're, whether you're sitting at a cafe or speaking to people who are investors in this space, it's dominating the conversation AI mm -hmm. is, um, the potential powers and the potential pitfalls. There's a real belief here among the technologists as well that AI is going to be a positive factor, an opportunity. There was a blog post just this morning from Mark Andreessen, of course, the famous VC Andreessen Horowitz. It's titled, Why AI Will Save the World. He argues that it's not going to destroy the world. It may, in fact, save it because it's going to make humans more productive um, and it's going to lead to all of these possibilities. Um, I think it's interesting that when you're talking about, um, Walter, about sort of the opportunity for investors here, there were many pets.com during the dot-com bubble and a few Amazons. But what about the Cisco's, right, that ended up being legitimate good tech companies decades later, but haven't gone anywhere? Mm. They've actually never reached that peak that they saw during the dot-com bubble. So it's an important question for investors. We look at a Microsoft and an Alphabet, which is leading in terms of that generative AI, a product that we can use every day in BART and ChatGPT. But is there going to be a newcomer coming in? And that's what, you know, people here are seeking to understand. Yeah. Who are the newcomers, the private companies, the startups? Raise good questions. Deirdre Bosa, thank you. All right, we'll be right back. One Market here in San Francisco on the Halftime Report. We're back. We do have breaking news from Washington. Our Eamon Javers is on Capitol Hill. Eamon? Hey, Scott, that's right. Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, is up here on Capitol Hill right now. He's meeting with a group of centrist Democrats uh, here in the Capitol building. But as he pulled in just a couple of minutes ago, a couple of reporters and I had a chance to ask him a couple questions. Take a listen to that exchange. 
they face 20% higher capital requirements under uh, a Fed proposal? I, I just read it this morning, and I hope the regulars are very thoughtful about what they do, and so, uh, but we'll see when they do it. So, Jamie, are you going to run for president? I think I think the spokesman for J.B. Morey said I have no intention of doing that. No intention. This year or 2024 or ever? Well, I never say never to anything, but no intention. What are you going to tell the House Democrats today? Well, I'm talking about the subjects that are on their mind. So, what subjects what? are on your mind? Whatever is on their mind. They invited me to come talk to them. I'm thrilled to doing it. And so, are you going to settle the Jeffrey Epstein lawsuits? I'm not going to talk about litigation here. Do you have a message for them on the state of the banking system in the U.S. economy yeah. after the events of the last several months? Yeah, I think we've been quite clear. I think it's actually quite strong, and there's some very isolated events out there, uh, and hopefully that's over. Will J.P. Morgan have to buy and more banks? I, I doubt it. Uh, and I think that what now is it, it relates to what the economy does much more than the banking system does. Who are you with? Bloomberg. Bloomberg. What do you think the Fed's going to do next week? I have no idea. How about the uh, Coinbase SEC lawsuit today? You think that was a good idea to crack down on crypto? Guys, I just landed from Asia and I just saw that lawsuit. So, uh, All right, thank you, Mr. Thanks, Jamie. So, Scott, you Scott, you heard the man there. He's just gotten off a plane from Asia. We fired a lot of questions at him there in a relatively short space of time, about 50 yards of sidewalk right over here. Uh, but clearly, he did not want to say what exactly he's going to be talking to the House Democrats here about today. Obviously, if you're up here on Capitol Hill in a political context, people are going to ask you political questions. He's been brushing aside this question about whether or not he wants to run for higher office, whether he wants to run for the presidency. You heard him there quoting the spokesperson for J.P. Morgan saying he has no intention of running for president. And of course, that raises the question of whether he would run under any circumstances. And boy, it would be difficult to imagine, Scott, uh, a Wall Street CEO in a populist era getting success and traction on a campaign trail out there in, in 2024. But stranger things have happened, as we've seen. So uh, you've got to keep your eye on this one, Scott. And we're up here. Yeah. And we're going to see if we can talk to him on the way out as well. Yeah, closely followed meeting, uh, no doubt. And it was Diamond himself a week or so ago is the one who opened the door to potentially serving his country. I think is the way that he put it, uh, Eamon. So we'll follow this today. Thank you for that. Eamon right. Javers down in Washington, D.C. Coming up, would you trust AI to give you investment advice? Our next guest created a tool to do just that. He's here. We discuss it next. Halftime live from One Market in CNBC uh, in San Francisco. Uh, we'll be right back. We're back on The Half live from San Francisco today. What if you could use artificial intelligence to build your investment portfolio? Well, that's exactly what our next guest has created. Alex Harmson is CEO and co-founder of Global Predictions and joins us now to explain this really interesting idea. It's called Portfolio Pilot. That's right. Happy to be here, Scott. Tell me how it, tell me how it works. Uh, basically, what we've done is taken all the best parts of AI and traditional human financial advisors, merged them into one. We've built a large infrastructure that monitors what's happening in the world, trends, integrates that with sort of the latest Wall Street portfolio management tools, and then uses AI to actually personalize recommendations for you around your specific portfolio. So we've made it as easy as possible to simply copy and paste or connect directly to your retirement accounts, your brokerages, cash, real estate, any stock options you might have. And then the system automatically assesses that, connects it to what's happening in the world, gives you specific problem areas and even recommendations on how to improve your portfolio. So I literally upload my portfolio 
and then artificial intelligence goes through and decides, well, maybe I should be more weighted here versus there. Maybe this is too expensive versus, versus that. How many users do you have right now? Uh, you're exactly right. We actually think that it's uh, what we call hybrid AI. And so we use a mix of traditional financial models and some of these new techniques around you know, large language models, GPT-4, so that it's not purely just a black box AI algorithm. Right now we have about 10,000 users, about $5 billion of assets on the platform. As you can imagine, it's really taken off. We've been in the market for a couple of years now, and just in the last couple months, adding in all these new AI features has uh, you know, caused an explosion in users and feedback. What's the difference between what you're doing and a robo-advisor, which I think people who you know, watch CNBC and, and watch our program have a pretty f uh, good familiarity with? We like robo-advisors a lot. You know, tremendous potential there, really low cost. You know, over the last 10 years, that's completely changed the game for a lot of individual self-directed investors. The biggest problem with robo-advisors is that it's typically just stocks and bonds. It's fairly low risk but low return in terms of the way they construct their portfolios. And we actually think that you know, most of our users, you know, tens of millions of Americans, actually want something that's a little bit more personalized to their scenario. And so the idea of just being put in a stock robo-advisor portfolio doesn't fit for mostly everybody you talk to. I, still, I feel like when you say, when you use the word you know, personalize, I think of human beings as the most personal interaction, especially when it comes to somebody's uh, assets. You know, Josh Brown, I, I'd love your opinion on this as, as a human being who helps people put together portfolios. Um, what you make of, of this particular product and, and what it may mean in the future in the way that our viewers and investors put together their, their investing futures. I don't really know a lot about the product, but I think what Alex is right about is that the ability to use these tools will absolutely augment the quality of advice that you can give and the quantity of people that you can serve. And that's the history of how the advisory business has um, grown up with technology over the last 50 years. So he's absolutely on the right track that this is the next evolution, using these types of tools to customize the experience. Um, but I think one thing that maybe is getting lost in the shuffle here, uh, just because you can add hedge fund-like strategies to a person's portfolio, it doesn't mean performance will be better. In fact, most of the academic research says it'll be worse. That's one. Number two, Wealthfront has already tried it, didn't work out well. So it's not true that the robos don't have access to alternative strategies. And three, I don't think, Alex, you are registered and you're actually giving advice. I think what you're doing now is making suggestions that investors can then take themselves, right? Uh, you're absolutely right on, on many of those things. You know, the personalization that we talk about, partly being able to just ask the system questions, being able to dive into specific stocks or bonds or real estate or question ar questions around you know, asset management, portfolio management. You know, we're specifically not a trading platform. Right? It's not about day trading. It's not about you know, trying to you know, tell someone, this is a really hot stock, buy this today. This is about long-term investment, you know, similar to what you see with a lot of human financial advisors. I think right now, we're in the middle of getting the SEC approval, and so we're registering as a registered investment advisor. Uh, one of the great benefits of that is that it's currently completely free to anyone that wants to use it. Uh, and so we're going to roll out a premium subscription this fall. 
but it's very important to us that we layered these financial models together with the AI so that we can get the regulatory approval, so that we can actually have this fiduciary responsibility and give recommendations that are truly meaningful to uh, all of our users, which is something that's never been tried before you know, from any of these robo-advisors. And actually very difficult, I think, to do that trading and you know, give the advice at the same time, partly because of uh, you know, what was just mentioned with yeah. the fiduciary responsibility. Super interesting. Um, we'll continue to follow it. Alex, thanks. Thanks for having me. All right, Alex Harmson joining us. Final trades are next. We have a special closing bell coming up today from One Market Live in San Francisco today. Brad Gerstner is going to be with me for the hour, and we have a rare interview as well today with Mustafa Suleiman. He's the Inflection AI CEO, but also the co-founder of DeepMind, which was sold to Google years ago. Sridhar Ramaswani is with us as well, the Neva co-founder, CEO as well. So we'll see all of you in a couple hours, I hope. Let's do final trades. Stephanie Link, you're first. Charles Schwab, I think the cash sorting has issue has uh, is calming down. Organic growth is, and NNA, net new assets, are growing 6 to 7%, and the stock trades at 15 times earnings. All right, good stuff. Josh Brown, what do you have? Uh, Uber is at a 18-month high right now. Stock looks like it's breaking out. I am long, and I am a long-term investor. Okay, Rob Seachin. Allison Transmissions, industrial name, maker of heavy-duty automotive transitions, 80% market share, trades at an eight times PE with an accelerating double-digit top and bottom line. All right. Enphase Energy is yours, Brent? And Enphase, this is a recent purchase for us. Stock has corrected a lot this year based on some reimbursement that's changed in California for solar customers. Okay. But we think there's a big opportunity on the, on the battery side. All right. Good stuff and great having you here. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit CNBC.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.